0: In 1877, Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky was a musical star on the rise. He had just finished writing his first piano concerto, a piece of music that would become so famous, musicians would come to call it the Chaik. But at this point, it wasn't famous. And neither was he. Tchaikovsky's main gig was teaching at the Moscow Conservatory of Music. He was 37 years old, handsome, with kind eyes and dark hair that he kept swept away from his forehead. He had to try and find time for composing outside of his classes at the conservatory, and he organized concerts on a shoestring budget. Time and money were tight, but he was making it work. And he didn't know it yet, But this would be a big year, one that would change his life forever. He was about to receive two very strange letters. One was the beginning of a love story. The other would lead to what he considered the biggest mistake of his life. I'm Jade Simmons and this is Decomposed. We bring you the stories that have shaped classical music. The heartbreaks, the betrayals, and the acts of sheer genius that changed everything. Tchaikovsky is famous for giving the world some of the most romantic music we have. The fantasy overture for Romeo and Juliet. The Swan Lake Ballet. Romances that end in tragedy. Tchaikovsky's own battles with love, with intimacy, with finding a soulmate. I feel like you can hear them in his music. I'm going to tell you the tangled love stories behind one of the world's most romantic composers. Back to those two letters Tchaikovsky received in 1877. Let's start with the letter that arrived on a crisp winter day from a woman named Nadezhda von Meck. She was a 47-year-old widow. She had 12 kids, and she was a multimillionaire. Her husband had died just a year before. He was a railroad tycoon, and he'd left her a massive fortune. And von Meck, her big passion was music. She'd commissioned a piece from Tchaikovsky before but they had never met in person. Instead, she'd been admiring Tchaikovsky from afar for a while now. She didn't just know his music. She was a huge fan. Her letter arrived after he conducted the debut of his March Slav. And let me tell you, conducting was not his thing. Tchaikovsky got horrible stage fright. He could barely keep it together up there, but he was running low on cash, so he did it. On stage that night, he felt clumsy and unsure of himself. Von Meck was in the audience. In B-flat minor, his march slav starts out a little melancholy, but also playful, like Tchaikovsky's got something up his sleeve, which he definitely does. When the full string section comes in, he hits you with this joyful, expansive theme. And it moved von Meck profoundly. She wrote Tchaikovsky a letter, a pretty bold one if you ask me. She wrote, I should like very much to tell you at length of my fancies and thoughts about you, but I fear to take up your time, of which you have so little to spare. She went on, Let me say only that my feeling for you is a thing of the spirit and very dear to me. So if you will, call me erratic, perhaps even crazy, but do not laugh. It could be funny if it were not so sincere and real. Tchaikovsky didn't laugh at all. He responded right away. Why do you hesitate to tell me all your thoughts, he wrote. If some happy day you will do me the honor of writing me what you have so far withheld... I shall be very grateful. And with that, all formality disappeared. Von Meck took him at his word and replied with a long letter. She told him how she hated socializing and small talk, and She asked for a photo of him. She said she already had two, but she wanted one directly from him. She told him how she was convinced that the perfect man was a musician with a great personality to boot she was sure Tchaikovsky fit the bill. Again, this is all even though they'd never met. She confessed that as soon as she'd heard Tchaikovsky's music, she started asking about him around town. She wanted to know everything about her new musical crush. She'd done so much asking around that at this point, she wrote, that she pretty much knew when and where he was at all times. Okay, so... A little creepy, right? Like when you get those random messages from someone on social media and then you look back and you see they've scrolled through all your pictures and all your videos and left way too many heart emojis. Come on. If you got a letter like this, you'd be a little weirded out. Maybe even a little alarmed. You might chalk it up to an overenthusiastic fan. But there was something about Von Meck's letter. Maybe the way she described being overcome by his music. Whatever it was, Tchaikovsky connected with it. He sent her the photograph she'd asked for, and he even wrote her some music, a funeral march that was never published, because he wrote it just for her. And then he bared his soul right back to her. He told her how he, too, struggled to become close with people, how he was always afraid of disappointing them. Social anxiety was something they had in common— which is why, very early in their friendship, they made an agreement. It's a bizarre one for someone you feel so close to, but they agreed they would never, ever meet. Von Meck was sure she'd be too nervous and awkward, and Tchaikovsky didn't think he'd live up to the version of himself that Von Meck had imagined. But if they took away the pressure of having to meet in person, then they could just be themselves in the letters. They became intense pen pals— I'm not talking about that one you promised to write after summer camp and it lasted all of a week. This wasn't like that. These two were serious. They were writing each other almost every day. Which brings us to the second strange letter Tchaikovsky got in 1877. It arrived just a couple months after von Mack's letter. Again, Tchaikovsky didn't recognize the name on the return address. And again, it was someone who'd been watching him quite closely. Antonina Milyukova had first seen Tchaikovsky five years ago at the apartment of a mutual friend. He'd made such an impression on her that she'd fallen passionately in love. From a distance, anyways. Now, Milyukova had inherited a chunk of cash from her family. With the dowry in hand, she'd decided it was time to make a move. She wanted to make her feelings known to the man she said she'd loved secretly for years. Tchaikovsky, on the other hand, had zero memory of ever even meeting Milyakova. So here he is, reading this letter with this dramatic proclamation of love, basically from a total stranger. And he brushed it off. He wrote her a polite response that more or less said, you should probably move on, okay? But this only egged Antonina on. She wrote back saying, Since your letter, I love you twice as much. She told him she couldn't live without him. At this point, I think it's pretty safe to assume that Antonina had no idea Tchaikovsky was gay. That wasn't information he shared widely. Tchaikovsky's closest friends and some of his family knew, but that was it he was determined that no one else find out. In Russia at the time, it was illegal for two men to have sex. Homophobia was the norm, and if the government decided to make an example of someone, the law said they could be sent to Siberia for up to five years. Now, realistically, Tchaikovsky wasn't worried about being exiled in Siberia. This law was rarely enforced, and if it was, wasn't used to punish upper-class people like Tchaikovsky. He knew more than a couple gay men who were open about their sexuality, but it wasn't without risk. I bet Tchaikovsky had heard stories about careers and personal lives that had been ruined after someone was outed. So when rumors about his sexuality started to circulate, I gotta believe Tchaikovsky was feeling anxious. I mean, how far would these rumors spread? What if they reached his parents? Then he had an idea, an idea for ending the potentially career-ending gossip. A wife, a wife would do the trick, right? When Miljakova's letter appeared out of the blue, professing her love, it was almost like a sign. So Tchaikovsky sat down to do something very romantic, lay out the pros and the cons. On the pro side was a big one. If he got married, his 82-year-old father would be thrilled. His dad was, of course, oblivious to the fact that Tchaikovsky had zero interest in women. Another pro? Good career move. He was an ambitious guy, and he dreamed of being a musical great. Being outed as gay could end all of that. Marriage offered protection. And then there was the dowry Milyakova had bragged about. I'm sure the idea of some extra cash didn't hurt. The list of cons, on the other hand, was short. But if you ask me, pretty compelling. Tchaikovsky didn't want a wife. But he agreed to meet Milyakova anyway. And shockingly, he proposed. Just a couple days later, he told Milyakova that if she could accept, quote, a quiet, calm kind of love, the love of a brother... Then they could be married. And who could resist being swept off their feet like that? Not Antonina. She said yes. On the day of their wedding, Tchaikovsky knew he'd made a horrible mistake. When they got to the kiss the bride part, he couldn't help it. He burst into tears. The more Tchaikovsky got to know his wife, the less he liked her he complained that she couldn't keep up with any intelligent conversation at all. And this next part was unforgivable. She didn't seem to know a single note of Tchaikovsky's music. Three weeks into his marriage, he had moved on from indifference to his new wife and landed squarely on hate. He now hated her. He'd spent a ton on the wedding and his new apartment, and that dowry he'd heard so much about, yeah, That hadn't turned up yet. Tchaikovsky was in the middle of a major crisis. By now, the other lady of letters in Tchaikovsky's life, Von Meck, was one of his closest confidants. After the disastrous wedding, he fell into a deep depression and he wrote to her. As far as we know, Von Meck didn't have the full picture of what was going on. She didn't know Tchaikovsky was gay. That was the one part of his life he kept from her, but he seemed to share everything else, including how trapped he felt in his marriage. He wrote to her, "To pretend for the whole of one's life is surely a unique form of torture." His situation was bleak. Tchaikovsky couldn't stand to be cooped up in his apartment with his new wife. He started going on long walks at night. He would Wandered the streets of Moscow aimlessly just to not be at home. Then one night, he walked straight into the Moskva River. It was freezing out. He hoped he would die. He left a note on the score that he was working on for his fourth symphony. It said simply: In the event of my death, deliver this to Madame von Meck. Now, this is not how Tchaikovsky dies. He got wet and cold, but he definitely didn't get pneumonia like he'd planned. This was a wake-up call, though. If things were this bad in his marriage, why not just call the whole thing off? Or at least ask your brother to do it. That's right, Tchaikovsky sent his brother to break the news to Antonina Milyukova, his wife of just three excruciating months, that their marriage was basically over. Divorce was relatively rare at the time, but couples still split up without making it official. This was Tchaikovsky's plan. He wanted to keep everything under wraps for the time being. He worried that a divorce would lead to more rumors about his sexuality, which was the opposite of why he'd gotten himself into the situation in the first place. When Tchaikovsky wrote to Von Meck about the breakup, she didn't hold back. She did not like Milyakova. Von Meck even wrote later, "'The thought of you with that woman was unbearable.'" She went on, "'I hated her because she did not make you happy, but I would have hated her a hundred times more if she had.'" Tchaikovsky's relationship with Von Meck only grew more tangled. Part of their relationship from the beginning had included Von Meck commissioning little pieces from Tchaikovsky. He knew she was overpaying him for these by a lot, and he had a hunch it was because she'd heard rumors of his money troubles. Slowly, Tchaikovsky let on more and more about his financial situation. He told Von Meck she was the only person in the world he wasn't ashamed to ask for money. Eventually, he popped the question Would she do him the honor of becoming his benefactress? Von Mech sent him back an enthusiastic yes, along with a big chunk of cash. She kept sending money whenever Tchaikovsky needed it. Soon, they agreed on a fixed annual budget. She'd give him 6,000 rubles a year, paid out in monthly installments. It allowed Tchaikovsky to flee town and lie low. He knew gossip might spread about his very short marriage, and he wanted to be far, far away when that happened. So he set off on a trip around Europe. And she kept the rubles coming. All Tchaikovsky had to do was keep composing. He started working on Eugene Onegin, an opera with a very famous scene involving a letter. And while he traveled, the letters flew between him and von Meck, They wrote about politics, they wrote about religion and philosophy, and of course, they wrote about music. Some of my favorite letters are the ones where they argue. They'd get into friendly debates about things they were passionate about, especially music. Once, Von Meck wrote that music could make her feel the same way as a glass of sherry. Which seems like a harmless enough opinion, right? But Tchaikovsky was seriously offended. He let her know she was dead wrong. Drinking is about deception, he said. Music, on the other hand, is about revelation. But then, some of their letters were so boring, so mundane, that you have to assume the people writing them must love each other, because who else could possibly care whether or not it was warm enough to keep the windows open last night, or how long your evening walk was? Who else would let you bore them like that? And then there are times when their letters sounded downright romantic. Tchaikovsky told Von Meck that he loved her with all the power of his soul. Von Meck wrote about how she believed their thoughts and even their disappointments were linked by the same destiny. In other words, she considered them soulmates. Ones that would never meet in person, sure. But soulmates. I did say there was a love story in here, remember? No, swans dancing around, yeah, but definitely a love story. Of some kind. In November 1877, just four months after his disaster of a wedding, Tchaikovsky finished his Rococo variations. It sounded the way Tchaikovsky felt. Things were looking up. He may have still been on the road, hiding from the world, but he was no longer trapped living with Milyakova. By now, he referred to her simply as the reptile. Plus, he was composing again, and Von Meck kept the cash coming. Their letters were flowing back and forth. Their postage bills must have been high. But then, over Christmas, Tchaikovsky went four whole days without hearing from her. Which doesn't sound super dramatic to me, but for Von Meck, it was very out of character. And Tchaikovsky was convinced his worst fear was realized, that she'd found out his secret and had decided to end their friendship. He waited for days, agonizing over the possibilities. But no, she'd just been distracted by the holidays, and her next letter arrived with no drama. His secret was safe. In the 10 months since their friendship had started, he'd become more and more dependent on Von Meck, emotionally for sure, but also financially. He showed his appreciation by dedicating his new symphony, his fourth, to his benefactress. The dedication read, to my best friend. Okay, so you'd think at this point, these two are so close, such good friends, that the shyness they felt at the beginning would start to disappear, at least a little. And maybe, just maybe, it was time to finally hang out in person. They were so close, they wrote each other constantly. What was the point of staying apart? Nope, instead, things got weirder, much weirder. After the break, will they ever meet? Hey friends, I'm Lauren Ober and I'm the host of Spectacular Failures, a new podcast where we dig into the true stories behind some of the biggest blunders in business history. Like when Kodak fumbled its own amazing invention, the digital camera or when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker's Christian theme park tanked because of scandal and fraud. Some of the stories are funny, some are sad, some are like, wait, what? No way! But each one will give you a totally new perspective on big business and big failure. Check us out at spectacularfailures.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jade Simmons and this is Decomposed. We enter a phase here where it seems like Von Mack is taking care of everything. She rents Tchaikovsky an apartment in Florence where he could keep composing without distractions. She got him set up with a grand piano and made sure he had Russian newspapers, Russian books, even his favorite cigarettes. Everything just as he liked it. There was one catch, though. Von Meck would be staying in her villa just two doors down. And the rules hadn't changed. They were not supposed to meet under any circumstances. Von Meck still insisted on this. How exactly are you supposed to avoid your super close neighbor like that? Von Meck had a plan. She gave Tchaikovsky a copy of her daily schedule for the entire time she planned to be in town. She even gave him copies of the route she planned to take on her walks. Tchaikovsky's part was simple. Just make sure he was never in the same place as his benefactress. Of course, their letters were still flying, and since they are just two doors away, it's more like passing notes back and forth in class than mailing letters. But this is the point where this arrangement might have become more awkward than it was worth. Because while Tchaikovsky had promised to avoid von Meck at all costs, she was operating under a slightly different set of rules. And hey, she was the one with the money. Von Meck started walking by Tchaikovsky's apartment every morning. And she'd stop to peer in the window. And it's not like Tchaikovsky didn't notice she was there. He wrote to his brother, What am I supposed to do? Go to the window and bow? He was feeling a bit claustrophobic, which you can't blame him for. And he was barely getting any composing done. But when Von Meck left the city, it surprised him that he actually missed her. He thought he'd be relieved, but instead he actually shed a few tears when he passed her empty villa. This would become a common pattern in their relationship. One second, Tchaikovsky felt suffocated by von Meck, annoyed by her strange habits, and the next... He felt needy and neglected. Avoiding home, Tchaikovsky made a few more stops on this tour of his. He went to Paris and then Berlin. He was working on a new opera now called Maid of Orleans. But eventually, Tchaikovsky made his way back to Russia. He couldn't hide from the gossips and his ex forever. Once he was there, Milyakova tracked him down. She'd had some time to think about it. And now she was desperate to be reunited. She threw her arms around Tchaikovsky's neck and tears streamed down her face as she kissed him. But he was not moved. He told her living together ever again was impossible. And once she realized he wasn't going to budge... She told him it was going to cost 15,000 rubles to make her go away. Instead, Tchaikovsky gave her 25 rubles to keep her at bay. But I think he knew this wasn't the last time he'd hear from her. Milyakova would become an almost constant source of anxiety for Tchaikovsky— Every so often, she'd pop up again, demanding money and making dramatic scenes. Eventually, she started making thinly veiled threats. Either Tchaikovsky could pay her, or she'd spill his big secret. Through all of this, Von Meck was Tchaikovsky's fierce supporter— it was her money that kept Miyakova at bay, her letters that calmed him down, and all of this for a man she'd never met. And believe it or not, Von Meck and Tchaikovsky managed to avoid meeting in person almost entirely. Yeah, almost. They couldn't keep it up forever. Here's how it finally happened. One afternoon, Tchaikovsky was out on a walk when Von Meck passed by in her carriage. Realizing it was too late to run or dive headfirst into a bush, Tchaikovsky looked up at Von Meck and tipped his hat. Neither one said a word, and the carriage moved on. That was it. They agreed it would never happen again. So this was a strange friendship, obviously codependent, demanding, and subject to a bizarre set of rules. But as far as I can tell, they both thought it was worth the hassle. They kept up their letter writing with the same intensity for nearly a decade. The only thing that really, really slowed down their letters was Von Meck's health. She started suffering from painful muscle cramps in her hands. At one point, it was so bad she couldn't write more than a few words at a time. But still, she managed to write Tchaikovsky. She told him, What worries me more than anything is being deprived of my conversations with you, my dear, my only friend. I have to think, there's no way he saw what was coming. In October 1890, she wrote him a letter. We have no record of it today, but we know from Tchaikovsky's response that Von Meck had decided to end her financial support. She told him she was on the verge of bankruptcy. She was cutting him off. And she decided that this would be the end of their friendship, too. Tchaikovsky was bitter. He was hurt. He was offended. And if you're thinking right now that he was only concerned about losing his cash cow, no. No. Tchaikovsky let her know that he didn't see why a change in finances should affect their friendship. That didn't matter to him, and he told von Meck as much. But he received no response. Ever. Over a thousand letters exchanged, over 14 years, and then, nothing. And the silence wasn't the worst of it. It didn't take Tchaikovsky long to discover that Von Meck wasn't going bankrupt at all. So he tried writing her again and again. He was so desperate to know what had actually happened. He asked about her through mutual friends for almost eight months until he finally had to accept that was it. It was over. But Tchaikovsky never stopped thinking about Von Meck. After almost three years of silence, he still hadn't let go. He complained about her in a letter to a friend saying, Oh, Nadezhda Filaretovna, you treacherous woman, why did you betray me? And then, just a few months after writing these words, Tchaikovsky cursed Von Meck's name on his deathbed. Or so his brother Moda said. Other people there in that moment said that he didn't curse her name at all. But that he repeated it over and over again in a delirious state. It's hard to know what to believe. There's even another story, this one from von Meck's granddaughter, who says that Tchaikovsky and von Meck made amends in secret just months before his death. But that's disputed, too, and there's no proof it happened. What we can say for sure is that there's no record of Von Meck writing to Tchaikovsky ever again. As far as we know, she didn't acknowledge his existence again until after his death, when she sent his family a wreath. No note, no card, just a wreath. There are many theories about why Von Meck ended things. For one, her hands were so bad that letter writing became nearly impossible. If she wanted to keep up her correspondence with Tchaikovsky, she'd have to dictate to someone. And imagine letting another person in on their deeply personal conversations. All the secrets and gossip they shared? I bet neither one would have liked that idea. Some people think von Meck's own family forced her to cut off Tchaikovsky. But like us, Tchaikovsky would never know for sure why their friendship ended. Tchaikovsky and Von Meck wrote each other some 1,200 letters. And as you can see when you read them, Von Meck was so much more than a pen pal. She was a confidant, an intellectual equal, and so importantly, a fiercely loyal benefactor. I believe Tchaikovsky meant it when he called her his best friend. What we do know is that Von Meck changed the course of Tchaikovsky's life. Think about it. Von Meck's friendship, helped him leave his painful marriage, and her money helped to keep his ex from outing him. Her financial support also freed him to compose full-time. Without her, he might have been stuck teaching at the conservatory. Without her, we might not have Tchaikovsky's Capriccio Italian or his Maid of Orleans. Without her, we might not have his Fourth Symphony, the one he dedicated to her. And we definitely wouldn't have the rare reflections on his own work that Tchaikovsky shared with von Meck so freely. After the premiere of the Fourth Symphony, von Meck wanted to know what exactly was going on in Tchaikovsky's head when he'd written all of this. What was he feeling? It's the kind of question artists almost never give a straight answer to. It's too hard to explain or maybe just too personal. But because it was Tchaikovsky's best friend asking... We, 140 years later, actually get to read a real answer. The type of detailed answer he'd never given before and would never give again. The introduction, he told her, is the theme for the whole symphony. It's fate the pesky force that keeps us human beings from ever finding contentment and happiness, and the daydreams that can distract us, giving us fleeting moments of joy, only to be ruined by fate again. He explained that the second movement was his own depression, like that feeling you get when you're Tired from a day of work and you're sitting alone. Maybe you pick up a book and it slips out of your hand. You play memories of your youth in your head instead. The third movement, he said, was the way you feel after a few strong drinks. You're not happy or sad, you're not thinking of anything specific, you just let your imagination run free. It's a type of escape. And then finally, the Fourth Symphony makes a suggestion, one that Tchaikovsky probably wished he could take for himself. If you can't find joy within yourself, look at others. Go out among the common people and see what a good time they have. The music paints a picture of peasants celebrating. the symphony ends fate intervenes again fate brings you back to yourself and the rest of the world dances on Tchaikovsky wrote you have only yourself to blame you cannot say that everything in the world is sad learn from the happiness of others with their simple but potent pleasures it is possible to live If you're enjoying Decomposed, the absolute best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody about it. Help spread the word. And take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. You can find Decomposed on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Decomposed Show. That's at Decomposed Show. Tell us your favorite composer and who we should cover next. For a complete listing of the music you heard in this episode, go to decomposedshow.org. That's decomposedshow.org for more about the music you heard this episode. You'll also see our reading list there. For this episode, we recommend Tchaikovsky by Anthony Holden and Tchaikovsky. By Roland John Wiley. Decomposed is hosted by me, Jade Simmons. It's produced by Tracy Mumford and Ryan Lohr. Chris Julin is our editor. This episode was written by Elissa Dudley with me. Sound design by Molly Bloom. Engineering by John Steele, Michael Osborne, and John Miller. Thanks to Elizabeth Lundy, our researcher, and Ryan Katz, our fact checker. The interim director of podcast for APM is Lauren D. Decomposed is made possible by Inspired by You, NPR's capital campaign, and the generosity of Ruth and John Huss. Much of the music featured is courtesy of Noxos of America Incorporated. Before you go, let's talk about how these stories get told. Decomposed is a public radio podcast that is supported by your donations. This show and shows like it only happen with your support. Donate today to hear more shows like this from APM Podcast. Give today at decomposedshow.org org slash donate.